2 Samuel chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Let us remember that this is God's word given to us that we might hear it and receive it by faith. 2 Samuel 20, beginning in 1. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, is it well with you, my brother? Then Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without, without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab, whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the men saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel and to Abel of Beth Maka and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maka. They cast up a mound against the city and it stood against the rampart and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her and the woman said, are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, they used to say in former times, let them, but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of Yahweh? Joab answered, far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true, but a man of the hill country of Ephraim, called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. 
And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benai, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder, and Shiva was secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira, the Jerite, was also David's priest. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we're gathered here this morning to pray, to praise, to glory in your goodness. Father, we come as wounded, we come as excited, we come as ones who are distracted from the cares and challenges of life. Father, we come not to set aside our lives, but to bring them before you for your inspection and transformation. So come, Holy Spirit, and move among your people. Come and testify to us of the goodness of the glory of God and the worthiness and value, infinite value, of your Son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people agree. Amen. Amen. We have, for some months now, been working our way through this large section in 2 Samuel, dealing with the rise and fall of David's throne. We've seen treachery and malice. We've seen David restored to that throne. We've seen countless men, women, and children whose lives are grieved and suffering, weariness and dreariness. And we must begin to see by now this human condition, this human condition of pride, this human condition of evil, of tender mercy. We are have been, will continue to be, complicated creatures designed with purpose, filled with perplexing moments. Sometimes men we've known to be savages have been extraordinary statesmen. We've seen horrible sons live out horror in the lives of the people around them. David, last week we saw, was returned to Jerusalem from his time of self-exile, and he returns to a divided kingdom. A fragile kingdom filled with fragile people called by God, claimed as his own. The kingdom is fragile, as we have seen, because the king is sinful. The kingdom is fragile because the people are sinful. And all of that sinfulness in leader and followers has brought us a glimpse of even more suffering and tragedy. How many times have you been told that the kingdom of God is easy? If you would just do it God's way, everything would be smooth, clean, simple. How many of us want to live smooth, clean, easy lives? And yet the more I gaze into the mirror of the book of Samuel, 
the more honest I am about the jeopardy we live in every day and the goodness that the kingdom of God still stands against all enemies, foreign and domestic. The kingdom of God stands. So today, right after we've seen the long drawn out rebellion of Absalom, we get to turn the page and we're gonna study and explore the great simple life of the rest of David's kingship. Chuckles appropriate. We have left one rebellion and we are immediately going to see another. What in the world? Has God not spoken? Does Israel not know that God has given them what they asked for? A king in the pattern of other nations? One this time filled with the desire to glorify Yahweh. And they're like, nah. What we see in 20 will be different than what we've seen in the rise of Absalom's rebellion. It'll have similarities, of course. But it is a functional secession. Absalom wanted everything. Sheba wants his own thing. And this is how we will watch it unfold. Look at, listen to verse one. There happened to be there a worthless man. May no one ever say that about me. So what is this worthlessness that we see from the jump? It is not a statement of value. It is a statement of function. It's not that he is worth less than other humans. That's the wrong road to go down. So in what sense is he worthless? It's in the sense that he is a scoundrel, that he's a troublemaker. Put simply, he's an active rebel. This worthless man has a name, Sheba, and how many times did you hear me say his father's name, Bikrai, Bikrai. This chapter is filled with as much Bikrai as it is Sheba, it seems. What's the narrator telling us? It's telling us that the threat to David's kingship is rising not just from an isolated individual, but from a past longing to have a northern tribe's king not a southern tribe's king. This is very important. Chapter 20 bookends a large section of 2 Samuel, but it also previews everything that is coming, not just in the book of Samuel, but in 1 and 2 Kings as well. Israel is divided And so one of the challenges in walking through a passage like this and a book like this is that you're trying to figure out where the lens belongs. Do we zoom in on a person or a particular episode? Do we pull back to see the whole? The writer here does a masterful job of zooming in close enough that we can understand lots of small moments but also zooming out and helping us see how these tiny moments fit into these larger realities. But one of the things I want you to remember is that Israel's the only nation I know of to keep its failures front and center in its history. This is one of the things that gives me great courage in every week pronouncing this is God's word because there's so much here that's foreign to the pride of man. Kings choose history, do they not? 
kings write their own history of what happened and who was the bad guy? How many times is the great king in Israel painted as the sinful man he really is? Too many for comfort, often. We want to put David there. And God puts David here in his heart and on his throne. So here we have yet another troublemaker. Apparently Israel produces a lot of these. The son of Bichri, the Benjaminite. Nate just said, of course he's a Benjaminite. What does Nate know that, that the rest of us need to remember? Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. There is a desire in the tribe of Benjamin to rule as they initially ruled. And remember, the great apostle Paul belonged to what tribe? Yeah. There is hope for the Benjaminites. But it's the same hope for all the other tribes in Israel. David's greater son who will come. So, what's the, what's the outcry? What is Sheba's issue? Sheba's issue is that they have no portion in David. That they have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Is the statement true? The statement's not true. Who's the God of Israel? Who establishes the tribes of Israel? Who has put one king in charge of Israel? Not in charge of Judah, but in charge of Israel. All of Israel has one king. And if you have one king, then all the tribes have one legacy attached to that king. One future that is brought forth from that king. His cry is, we can't trust David. Because we can't trust Judah. Because we can't trust Yahweh. Yahweh must be wrong. I must be right. Follow me. No one in this room has ever thought like that, right? No one in this room has said, uh, I have a better plan than what I think God wants. Let's do it my way. Sheba's just dumb enough to invite everyone into his own folly. How is this going to end for him? Not good as it ends for everyone who is in rebellion against the God of glory, the living and true God. So he doesn't attack. Sheba's rally cry is not, meet me in Gibeon, let's go to work. His rallying cry is, let's withdraw. Let's secede and create our own future. Maybe they'll just give us some territory and leave us alone, because men often do that peaceably. So all the men of Israel, these are the northern tribes, withdraw from David. Let's be clear here, the all here is not everyone. There aren't little toddlers picking up their toys to follow Sheba, okay? This is all in the sense of the armies, the fighting men, those loyal to him. They withdraw out of the northern tribes to follow Sheba, the son of Bichri, Benjaminite, but the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan into Jerusalem. Now David is in Jerusalem. And the last time he was here, he put the concubines in charge of his house and he departed. Before we read what comes next... Let's remember what God proclaimed before. Because of David's despicable sin towards Bathsheba and Uriah, 
God judged him and gave consequence for his sin. This is part of what God said. I will raise up this trouble against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, give them to your neighbor, i.e. Absalom, your son, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Do you remember the tent on the palace roof and what went on there? That is the salacious scandal that everyone would likely be buzzing about. What is David going to do to them because of Absalom? Make no mistake, it wasn't like they had a choice. But it was made public, and it was in the face of the sun, which is another way of saying it was out in the open in front of everyone. What will David do? How will he react? Do they die because of what Absalom did? Let me make one more observation before we dive further in. It is newsworthy that the author places this scene at the very beginning of this passage. Because the end of this passage is basically a footnote. So-and-so's in charge of this, and -and so-and-so's in charge of that. And it's sort of like documenting this moment in a conclusionary manner for what's gone on thus far. If this wasn't a big deal in what's coming, it would have been put away in the footnotes. The salacious answer given, but in a way that draws very little attention to it. That is not what the author has done. In other words, this verse 3 is important to God. It's important to God that we have clear understanding of what happened and why and what followed. So let's do it. David comes to his house at Jerusalem and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard, and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Living as if in widowhood. David didn't kill them, and he didn't abandon them, at least financially, for provision and resources and food. But they had been made a spectacle to all of Israel by Absalom. So they would spend the rest of their natural lives secluded in forced isolation, guarded for protection. Whose? Theirs, sure. Anyone who's really mad at Absalom could certainly take it out on them. But also, it was for the protection of keeping them in place. This is a form of imprisonment. We will give you three squares, but your life as a living, breathing member of the community in good standing is gone. Why does this matter? Why is this important? I think it's important because it smacks of the tragedy of Tamar. Amnon lusted for her, so he violated her. And then immediately after he violated her, he despised her and discarded her like trash and left her suffering 
in desolate isolation for the rest of her life. Amnon sinned, so Tamar suffered. Just like Tamar, these women collectively, due to no fault of their own, were subjected to forced violation to suit the desires of a lust-filled man, and then they were consequently subjected, again by force, to live the rest of their lives in the joyless, unjust suffering of de facto widowhood. Make no mistake, everyone in Israel is suffering because of the sin of their king. Some of it is easier to see than others. But let's be honest with one another and with ourselves and conclude that there is no such thing as harmless sin. It does not exist. I believe that the injustice and violation that these women endured is a sign publicly of the internal human condition. Men with power are prone to abuse their power. David did. Absalom did. Sheba is trying to. Bummer. Yes? Tragic. Sorrowful. Hey, pastor, where's the joy? You're kind of in the joy business, homie. Right? Isn't that what your heart's thinking, even if not in those words? This is heavy and gruesome and vile and awful. Can you move on already? What's our hope? Our hope is that David's greater son will someday soon come to bind up the brokenhearted. These women have immeasurable value. And Jesus is the one who knows that and will meet all of their needs despite their temporal suffering and dreary isolation. They are eternally loved and will be rescued one day from their current fate. Okay? Now, in what follows, let's contrast how David handles Sheba's rebellion with how he handled Absalom's. Oh, Absalom, Absalom, that young man who's done very little wrong. No, 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 no. David has all of this guilt and shame projected onto the despicable son who has murdered his other son, and raised rebellion in Israel against the king and the, the one who gave them the king, God himself. And there, David is slow to fight, quick to drag his heels, quick to take the burden upon himself to, to deny how important or significant this rousal is, this war of rebellion that's risen up in front of him. David remembers to put an information network, can you fight a war without information? You need those networks, right? Yeah, you can fight an unsuccessful war without information. But David puts the people in place. He gets the information he needed. He leaves a saboteur in the realm of those close to Absalom. But this is a slow progression in this war. This one's not slow, David's back in Jerusalem, hears about Sheba, and is like, go gather the men, you have three days. Did you catch that? The king says to Amasa, the northern commander's army general, call the men of Judah together to me within three days, and be here yourself. Now, Amasa is northern tribe, that's why he was given the commander of all of Israel. David is trying to negotiate peace between Judah and the northern tribes. 
But Amasa might not be as loyal to David as David is hoping he is. But he knows that this rebellion from Sheba needs to be quelched immediately or the harm will magnify. Meet me here in three days with an army. Verse 5. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the time set that had been appointed for him. So he's not there when the king told him to be there, and he doesn't have with him the people that God had said, I mean, that David had said, bring with him. David is not going to be delayed by Amasa's delay, whether it's a tactic or a functional problem. So David turns and says to Abishai, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do more harm to us than Absalom. I'm not sure that's totally true, but this is the general David, not the father David, wanting to deal with the rebellion. I'm not sure that Sheba wanting to secede from the kingdom is as harmful as Absalom trying to lay siege to the whole of the kingdom. But maybe David knows something we don't know. But in either case, the army instructions, the military orders are very clear. Take your Lord's Lord's servants, pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. David does not want Sheba to escape. And there went out after him, that's after Abishai, Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. And they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba the son of Bichri. So Amasa's delay don't hinder the pursuit. He just puts a new general in charge and sends them out. Then we get this scene in verse 8. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. So he was late, but he arrives, and Joab, this is hilarious, okay? Joab is going to be described in military garb. Is anyone surprised that Joab has a sword on his hip? No. So why are we zooming in on this moment? Because Joab is not going to be David's advisor here. David has got loyalty to Joab, and Joab has loyalty to David, but that loyalty is not going to allow David to control Joab. Joab does as he pleases. That has been true, and we're going to see just how true it is in this moment. So here's this powerful, accomplished warrior with his sword on his hip, And he's going to stumble in such a way that that giant sheathed sword is going to slip out of its sheath and fall to the ground. What? This guy drops his sword? Who drops their sword? This guy is not dropping his sword on, oops. He's making a tactical decision. And the tactical decision is, Amasa has my job. And I don't really trust the northern tribes right now. Because this could be a complicated ploy in case they lost the battle, but could still fight for the throne. So, oops, the sword falls out. He's got a belt, he's got the sword. It falls out. So Joab says to Amasa, is it well with you, my brother? Joab does not have his sword in its battle sheath. And his line opens with one of affection, right? My brother. It's very rare that you open with my brother and then immediately somebody dies at your hand. Is it well with you, my brother? It's a great question, right? He had been delayed. Were you sick? Was there an obstacle? What's the challenge? And as he's asking him, Joab takes Amasa by the beard with his right hand. That's his fighting hand. The right hand is your battle 
hand. So his words are affectionate, ones of concern, care. And he comes to him with an empty right hand, having picked up that that accidental drop of the sword with his left hand. But that's harmless. It's in his left hand. So he grabs him by the beard. This is sort of like the jaw of his beard. And pulls him in like he was going to give him a hug and a kiss. On the cheek. They're not lovers. But as he pulls him in, sticks him with that sword that's not in his right hand, but his in his left. And he runs him through so effectively that he doesn't even have to bother with a second. This is a master swordsman. You think he only ever practiced with his right hand? This guy was prepared for battle if his right hand got chopped off. So he's effective with his left hand. This is not an accident. This is a setup. Joab is uncontrollable by anyone but Joab. That's why we get verse 10. Massa doesn't observe the sword. He just gets struck with it in the stomach, so much so that his guts spill out and there's no second blow needed. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. Wait, we don't get an explanation? He literally is like one Benjaminite down, another to go. Wow. I mean, that's cold-blooded murder of someone who's supposed to be there to fight on your side, to take down the opponent's threat, even if you guys aren't friends. Isn't the enemy of my enemy my friend, at least on some level? (laughs) Not in Joab's eyes. Hi, Joab, nice to see you again. So one of Joab's young men, these are like armor bearers, took his stand by Amasa and said, whoever favors Joab, whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. There's no vote. There's a new general in town and David didn't appoint him, but it doesn't matter. This is battle and we're gonna go finish this mission. So here's the rally cry. I would love to see this in a movie. And Amasa is wallowing in his blood in the middle of the highway such that anyone who comes by sees him and stops, presumably to help. And then one of the soldiers realizes that the dying corpse of their enemy is slowing down efficiency. So they drag him out into the field, throw a cloak over him so that nobody pays any attention to the slaughtered general and goes on about the mission because, you know, it's a mission and people die all the time. Just put his corpse over in the field. That way, there's no more obstacle. In fact, I think we're to conclude that Amasa has been an obstacle in this story. His time delay was an obstacle to David's urgency, verse 5. Amasa's leadership was an obstacle to Joab's plan, 8 and 10. And Amasa's corpse was now an obstacle to the army's pursuit of Sheba. He was a de facto speed bump in military expediency. But let's pay attention that Joab's treachery has returned and his hands are filthy with blood. And that has consequence. Joab has a loyalty to David, no doubt. But he does not have a submissive heart to David. Why point this out? Because we are told by Jesus that there are some who will say, Lord, Lord. Have I not done all these things in your name? That's a form of loyalty. 
And he will say, be gone from me, I never knew you. You worker of evil, thank you. How loyal are we to the throne of heaven? Do we do things in Jesus' name because it's expedient? It, it opens business doors and financial opportunities? Is it for fellowship and social reasons? Does it help me get what I really want? Is Jesus a means to an end, or is he the glorious end in himself? Are you looking for a new Lord, but Jesus will do for now? Are you pretending he's your Lord? For your own gains, for your own perceived desires. Joab is a very great warning to us about the difference between loyalty and submission. Mark Imborski is the one who taught me. Submission is never tested in agreement. It's not. If you agree, it costs you nothing. It's another way of saying, do you need a regenerated heart to want X? Do you need a regenerated heart to suffer X? Or is that what the world offers, right? Nobody in here needs a regenerate heart to want to be wealthy. Nobody in here needs a regenerate heart to want to be healthy. Nobody in here needs a regenerate heart to desire fame or fortune or fellowship, right? You can have those things out of the desires of your flesh that you were born in. Joab's loyal to David, but he's not submissive. So they pursue. They pursue Sheba in the high northern Israel town. It's kind of a fortified town or city of Abel Beth Maka. And all the Bichrites assembled there and followed him into that town. And so Joab is going to gather the army to besiege this fortified town. And we get some instructions about how they're doing it. They're trying to bring down the rampart by piling up a mound against the walls. And they get over the wall and destroy the gates and then sack the city. Well, it must have become clear to the people of the town that Joab would win, that it was only a matter of time between, before their water was empty and their food supplies used up. So of all people, verse 16, the town sends a wise woman who was called from the city, and she yells out, listen, listen, tell Joab, come here, that I can speak to you. How courageous of this lady, right? There's no guy who wants to do this, put his head on the line. Hey, can I talk to Sheba? What does Sheba do when he gets close to people he's at war with? Ask Abner, right? Ask Absalom. Joab kills for expediency. And she's like, let's talk. That's very brave. I wish I knew her name. So she's referred to here as the wise woman, which is, of course, a reminder of another wise woman back in chapter 14. You can check that out this week on your own. So she calls out, are you, jo notice how much space is given to this conversation. Again, drawing attention to something easily overlooked or neglected. This wise woman calls up from the city and invites Joab. Joab comes to meet her, and she asks him, are you Joab? And he answers, I am. And then she says to him, listen to the words of your servant. She's good at politics. This is probably why they picked her. And he answers, I am listening. And then she says, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. She's appealing to the faithful history of their fortified city, town, village thing. People come here for wisdom. Doesn't that sound like the Greeks? 
You have to wait a little while, but yeah. So here they are in the northeast corner of Israel, and she's calling about their history in order to settle a matter. They're good peacemakers. In other words, they're politically savvy. Sheba chose an academic or intelligently minded people to ally himself with. This is another support for the idea of secession as rebellion. So she gives him all the backstory and says, I'm one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of Yahweh? She's good. Right? Mother city? Ooh, that's a visceral image. Yes? The, the heritage of Yahweh. All right, I got to be careful with what I do. She is brilliant in her approach. Don't destroy us. We are tied to Yahweh. Be nice to us. So Joab answers, and I love this, far be it from me, far be it. You got you to gotta see the irony here is thick. That I should swallow up or destroy. Swallow up? Me? Destroy? Me? Who do you think I am? You. We think you're you. We're pretty sure you're you. As a matter of fact, go check the fields next to the highway if you're unsure. Irony. Oh, that's not true. I'm not here to destroy or, or to swallow up. No, no, no. There's a man here from the, the hill country, not one of these urbanites like us. This is one of those rural folks. And he's from the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, and he's the son of Bichri. You've probably heard of him. And he's lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone. I'll withdraw from the city. And the woman cries back, deal. <laughs> I'll give you his head. You can take it home because they don't have Polaroid cameras. Proof of execution, right? So literally, that's what happens. They kill him. They send Sheba's head over the wall. She speaks her words of wisdom, verse 22. They cut off his head, and then Joab blows the trumpet. Have we seen a blowing trumpet in this chapter before? Yes, Sheba blew the trumpet to get the attention of the army so that they would go with him. Joab, hilariously, blows the trumpet at his death, ending this attempted rebellion. Man, now it's fast. It was fast. Absalom wasn't so fast. Because David's king in this moment, not dad. So Joab blows the trumpet. They leave the city, apparently the mound of dirt. And they go home to Jerusalem to the king. And Joab was in command. And this is where we get the footnotes of who's in charge and who's doing what and why it matters. Man, that's a chapter filled with horror. Tragedy, yes. Sorrow, dreariness, yes. Victory, ease, yes, yes, yes. You got like the whole human condition here minus romance, right? Pilgrims trying to find a better home. What's the theological witness of this chapter? What does this chapter tell us about the nature of God, the nature of man? The glory of Christ. I think it tells us what Martin Luther ended his most favorite song with. Mighty Fortress is our God. Jeremy leads us in that every Reformation Sunday to my memory, true? The kingdom of God is fragile. It's fragile. And it's filled with sinners who do what sinners do. But it's standing. The kingdom of God is still standing. 
against all enemies, foreign and domestic, against all lusts and greeds and desires, all sincere error and insincere action, against all enemies, God's kingdom stands and it will stand and it will stand and it will stand and it will rule forever and ever and ever and opposition to the kingdom of God is pure, vain folly. Because Jesus rescues us from our leaders' sin. Because Jesus rescues us from the sins that others have unjustly committed against us. He rescues us from the sins that we have committed against others. He rescues us from all sins and sorrows, from all follies and foolishness, and he delivers us from desolate isolation to eternal membership in the household singular of faith. His father's house where he has gone to make a room for you. Amen? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we recognize our sin today. We see ourselves in the acts of unholy men. Father, we see your mercy undeserved on display. We thank you for the wise women in our lives. We thank you for your goodness and loyalty to us. Father, we thank you that you can give us regenerated and submissive hearts because in that absence, we would rule our own lives into desolation and catastrophe. Father, we thank you this morning that though your kingdom is fragile, it remains and it stands strong. Would you transform us that we too would stand, even fragilely so. Lead your people to stand, that we might see your face and sing your praises forever and ever and evermore. And all God's people agree.